Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Shuta Mo, and uh, I am a host for New Books Network. Um, and uh, here today, we're going to talk about a guide to academic podcasting written by Hannah and Stacy. Uh, Hannah and Stacy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Would you please first introduce yourselves, um, where you come from, where you are, and uh, tell us also about your favorite podcast style? Ooh. Stacey, you want to go first? <laughs> podcast style. Okay, the questions were who I am, where I'm coming from, and favorite podcast style. Okay, so hi, I'm Stacey Copeland. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University in the School of Communication, and also uh, a person who really loves podcasts and radio, so much so that that's all I study and do a lot of these days. Um, and my favorite podcast style that's a really good question. I think I'm most interested in podcasts that are really experimenting with sound art and what it means to make worlds, either fiction or nonfiction worlds, through podcasting. Um, I do occasionally like a good true crime, like everyone else, um, but that's more guilty pleasure, like long rides on airplanes style listening versus what I like to listen to every day. So, I mean, anyone who gets familiar with my work knows I'm a forever a big fan of the Heart podcast, for instance, and thinking about uh, what kind of work I'm interested in in the sound art space. In preparing for this um, this podcast, we I listened to your sharing about the one of the podcasts you you share with listening to um reading about um, Harry Potter. And uh, and then you said, well, on the podcast, we actually get to talk about everything um, <laughs> because it's so much about, about it is reading um, and the experience of reading and close reading. And yeah, I mean, maybe not true crime, which is its own, its own genre. I, I mean, I am definitely one of those people who doesn't, listen to the same kinds of podcasts I make, which I think is the case actually with a lot of podcasters, that if you make something in a particular genre, you tend to listen to quite a different genre. So I don't listen to other Harry Potter podcasts. Sorry, other Harry Potter podcasters. Um, And I don't really listen to podcasts about books at all. Um, I love a chatty roundtable podcast. That is what I am all about. A weekly or like better yet, two to five times a week, like the more frequently you can release the better. Um, And I want like a recurring cast of characters. I want a conversation that is like loosely held together by some sort of premise or topic, but that is mostly about the kind of familiarity you gain with the hosts over time. Um, so, you know, my favorite podcast, like I like pop culture happy hour, which is daily now. Um, I love who weekly, which is a celebrity gossip podcast. I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. 
um, that are just like a few comedians just chatting with each other for an hour and a half. Um, I'm really into like that informal chatty um, intimate feeling that comes from that conversational style of podcast. Interesting. I don't want anybody to teach me anything. Ah, interesting. So you're saying that you're doing it really for entertainment reasons, not for scholarly communications uh, or folk or getting some insights on onto your field of academic publishing. Yeah, I mean, most of my podcast listening is for pleasure, 100%. Um, I do listen to podcasts for work, but when I'm listening to podcasts for work, I have to listen very differently. Like if I'm actually going to be attending to what the podcast is doing and like thinking about it as a podcast, I need to like sit down and listen deliberately and like take notes. Um, Whereas the vast majority of my podcast listening is while I am doing other things. Like I almost always just have a podcast playing on my headphones while I'm cooking or cleaning or going for a walk. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And I'm not, I'm not of the like podcasts as a form of self-improvement, not interested in self-improvement. I'm committed to getting worse. Why is that? I think pop culture. <laughs> yeah, pop culture can make you slightly better sometimes too. Well, yeah, I mean, more knowledgeable, certainly able to like participate in conversations about new movies, which is great. And that that counts as. Mm, I mean, why race to the bottom? I, I still don't. I mean it was mostly it was mostly a joke but it is definitely one mode of podcast listening is that for some listeners podcasts are about like optimizing your time so that whenever you're doing anything else you're also listening to a podcast that is somehow making you better and that sort of participation in podcasting as a form of self-improvement does not particularly appeal to me personally, because I'm not particularly interested in like neoliberal self-improvement or optimization. You're I would rather waste at two my times time. Speed, yeah. People right? listening at two times speed so they can fit more self-improvement podcasts into their day. And I'm like, no, I'm going to listen at normal speed and I'm going to listen to a lightly edited three hour rambling conversation. I just wanna I just and, and you do like that the flow. While also doing some work? Or here is your entertainment, here's your you would be doing you'll be cooking, like you'll be going for a walk, you would be spending time in the garden and then you listen to the entertaining podcast. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Sorry for the roundabout detour. Now we're coming back to your introduction. (laughs) Oh yeah, who am I? (laughs) Yeah, you've got my hot take on self-improvement. My name is Hannah McGregor. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Publishing at Simon Fraser University um, and the co-director of the Amplify Podcast Network. and where am I? I'm on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, uh, which is currently known as Vancouver. And uh, it's sunny out, 
And you know about the kinds of podcasts I like to listen to. Except there's one additional category, and that is improvised actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcasts, of which I listen to multiple. Wow. Wow. I've never Mm -hmm. listened to it. (laughs) Well, if you want to try, I've got some recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I would love to jump in and discuss some of the planning for academic podcasting. Before we do, perhaps you can tell us a bit about what is Amplify Network and uh, what it, uh, what is the reason that you and Stacy have come to creating Amplify uh, Network? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the Amplify Podcast Network is a collaborative research project primarily between Simon Fraser University and Wilfrid Laurier University Press, which is a scholarly press here in Canada. Um, and it builds on a previous collaboration that I did with Siobhan McMenemy, who is the editor at Wilfrid Laurier University Press, experimenting with peer reviewing podcasts as a form of scholarly communication. So Our test case, our kind of pilot podcast, was a podcast I made for four seasons called Secret Feminist Agenda, which we put through three rounds of peer review. We peer reviewed the first three seasons of it. And based on the success of that pilot project, we decided to build out that work a little bit in the form of the Amplify Podcast Network. The idea being that the network as a sort of larger collaboration would give us the chance to bring other podcasters in to encourage other scholars to experiment with podcasting and to go through the peer review process themselves, but also to sort of build some more of the infrastructure that we felt was needed for scholarly podcasting to become a sustainable form of scholarly communication. Um, So building up, you know, guidelines, best practices, some tools needed to sort of help podcasts fit into the existing ecosystem of of how people discover scholarship. Um, And a big part of what we wanted to do when we sort of expanded into the Amplify Podcast Network is also bring some folks with some more um, sound production expertise into the conversation because Siobhan has no background in audio and I am totally self-taught. And that's really where Stacy came in because Stacy's background is very much in sound production in a way that that my own is not. Um, and so Stacy joined us as both the project manager for the grant, as well as the supervising producer to help bring some of that more sort of sound specific expertise into the project. That's amazing. And uh, uh, how much of the, the resources that you publish are open source that's available for the public to, to view it? So the guidebook uh, in particular is our first kind of 
bigger piece of that puzzle. Um, with the Amplify Podcast Network, we are trying to make sure there is resources available for people and sharing resources more broadly as well. Uh, but the first kind of stage of that ethos that's really part of the network was the release of the guidebook, which is completely open access, uh, available through our website and available uh, as an EPUB and a PDF to try and make it as accessible as possible. Um, and really in that we're trying to focus, you know, there's so many guidebooks out there for people interested in podcasting, like just Google how to podcast or podcast 101 and you'll just come back with a million different resources. So we were more interested in creating uh, our own resource guide that was specifically for other scholars and academics interested in podcasting um, that answers some of the questions of how to approach podcasting, but within this specific context that we're interested in, um, in making podcast scholarship. Yeah. In many ways, the, the guidebook was about taking a version of the workshop that we are constantly invited to deliver, which is intro to academic podcasting for academics, and to sort of turn that workshop into an accessible resource um, so that anybody who, you know, is asking those questions can find a version of basically the answers that we would give you. If you asked us those questions directly, we just wrote it all down in a book. That's amazing. Um, what, when it comes to the, the choosing style um, section um, that is in, I think the first chapter and, uh, and that's a decision, I think incredibly key for for any academic or anybody who wants to podcast to make but when when we think about scholarly publishing um, at least for me a lot of it has to do with being really serious and very rational and uh, and being perhaps emotionally neutral if not distant um, is is there is this a kind of um, thinking that is, perhaps a deterrent when it comes to choosing styles for, for academic publishing? <laughs> Hannah and I are both just like raised eyebrows, like, Ooh, this is a question. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of scholarly podcasting going on. Um, and there are lots and lots and lots of different approaches to it. And part of choosing your style is about figuring out like, what is your goal with choosing to work in podcasting as a medium? Um, what do you want to do? What do you want to convey? What do you think becomes possible for you when you work in this medium, as opposed to other more conventional scholarly publishing media for me as a feminist, a big part of the appeal of podcasting is the possibility of putting myself, my voice, my embodied presence in the world back into my scholarship. And so I was already very interested in pushing back against that notion of the scholarly voice as disembodied, detached, objective, um, neutral, etc. Uh, and, you know, in that way, my work is engaged with critical race theory, with queer theory, with trans theory, with feminist theory, which is, you know, so interested in putting the body, putting the lived experience back into our scholarly work. So that's what appeals to me as a scholarly podcaster. And so that's why 
when I make podcasts, I try to make sure there's space for affect, embodiment, informality, laughter, tears, all of this stuff. I want that there, right? I When I make Witch Please with Marcel, I want her baby's you know, laughing to stay. That's not a problem with the sound. I want it in there because it matters to me that she is a mother and also a scholar because that is part of her, you know, her full identity as a human. But that's not the only approach people can take. Like there's lots of different ways. There's ways to be a scholarly podcaster where your own voice doesn't have to appear in your work at all. Well, and I think, you know, getting to the question of style and why my why I raised my eyebrows with similar reasons to Hannah in that there's the choosing your st- your podcasting style question in the sense that we first introduce it in the guidebook, which is more around like the intersections of style, genre, and format. Thinking about what kind of sound, what kind of conversation your podcast is going to be a part of. Um, in the sense of, are you taking more of a playful conversational style to your work? Or are you taking like a a hard news journalistic style, things like that? Um, Versus if you're approaching this question of style from maybe a scholarly viewpoint where scholarship has to be coming from this unbiased understanding of what is scholarship, podcasting is going to be an interesting space for you to come into because it is not a space where people are used to having any sort of conversation that is within this kind of unbiased logic. Um, Personally, I don't like listening to work that takes that approach because it means we're hearing work that is much more like taking a neutral stance that doesn't exist in the world that I come from, which is, again, like Hannah, a world where feminist critical theory is at the forefront. And that's the understanding that there is no such thing as unbiased scholarship. We're all coming with some sort of context or understandings, experiences that shape the way that we're approaching work. And I guess, you know, that is kind of where we're coming from, a presumption and choosing style that you know that you're coming with a, a particular set of questions, a particular approach to your work. And so thinking about how that feeds into the overall sound uh, and what kind of genre and format you'd like to choose for your podcast. Thank you. Um, I know that you are... Um, I'm still kind of lingering on the question of putting the body back into the podcast space um that you know <laughs> the the raising of the eyebrow and to articulate that in in the in the space because i can't i can only see hannah i can't see uh, stacy so my responses to stacy feels a little bit different from my responses to to hannah because the 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 words seem to occupy a much bigger weight um when when i when i simply when i'm playing when i'm playing only with the words um and not with the um and not with the visuals so i'd be curious to ask about what is as scholars as feminists um as theorists uh, what are your relationship to gendered voice and to the art of listening. Oh, this is Stacy's 
<laughs> this is my jam. Absolute jam. Um, so a lot of my research actually outside of the network is very much focused on gendered voice and the relationship that Hannah's also interested in of embodiment and how the voice can kind of bring us into those questions. So I, which is kind of controversial, think about the voice more as an extension of the body rather than some sort of disembodied voice out in the ether, some sort of object for us to consume. I think it's something we need to think about as always connected to a body Um, and perhaps that relates to how I approach all my questions of what we should be thinking about when we're thinking about how to make a podcast, um, in the sense that, you know, gendered voice has this long history, uh, you know, there's this long history of what kinds of voices are considered to be authentic or authoritative, what voices have the right to take up space and speak. And that has long been um, men's voices, white cis men's voices in particular in the Western context. And those voices have actually, in my research, physically changed the way that women approach their presentation of voice as well in lowering our voice to try and fit those same aesthetics. Um, and also choosing what words and a style we take in in our conversation to sound more authoritative, um, right? When we think about like a traditional university lecture style, what that kind of voice sounds like in contrast to maybe Hannah's favorite chat podcast, those are very different approaches to speaking, to sharing knowledge um, that speak back to our understandings of authority, uh, understandings of gender in relation to what voices can take up those conversations. Um, so, I mean, that all feeds into my interest in podcasting is kind of pushing back against that long history in journalism and long history in uh, the radio space in particular for me. because that's a lot of my research is in radio and podcasting. Um, where podcasting has opened up these conversations again to say, wait, why do we think, you know, a, a really journalistic, authoritative male voice is more credible or uh, more valued than, say, a, a women's roundtable chat podcast talking about the same subject? Where do those where do those logics come from? Why do we feel or think that way still today? Um, and so podcasting is exciting for me because it's making lots of people think about those conversations, maybe in ways they hadn't before. Yeah, it also podcasting also, I think, creates a really, for me personally, as a listener, a really interesting opportunity to think about the relationship I understand between voice and body, both of my own and of the people that I listen to. I, I think sometimes about like, the body haunts the voice in the sense that when you are listening to a voice, you know, there must be a body out there somewhere that that voice came out of. Um, and I, I think about this akin to uh, a discovery I have had through the pandemic, which is that I am incredibly bad at guessing what the bottom half of people's faces look like based on seeing the top half of their faces. Like I've never been right. I have never had somebody take off their mask and been like, yeah, that's what I thought you looked like. Every time they, I see somebody take off their mask, I'm like, what a surprise I had. I couldn't have guessed. And the same thing holds true of when you, like when you have been listening to somebody for a long time and then you like see a picture of them for the first time, you realize that you've, you've constructed an image for yourself somewhere of what the person you're listening to looks like. And 
that is both just sort of like an interesting phenomenon of listening to sound-based media, but it also becomes, I think, if you're thinking about it in a more critical fashion, an opportunity to sort of challenge your own relations between voice and body. Like, what do I as a white listener perceive as a racialized or a non quote unquote, non-racialized, there's no such thing as non-racialized, but like, you know, what, like, how do I identify race through sound if I am doing so? How do I identify gender through sound? You know, when I listen to a particular voice, I am, I am arriving at an assumption as a listener fairly quickly about what I think, who I think that person is, often subconsciously. And then there can be these opportunities to have that push back, right? To say like, oh no, actually I'm not like, I can learn things about my own listening ear through thinking about the relationship between voice and body. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the last sentence you said. Can you, can you just say the last sentence, the last bit again? Yeah. Yeah. I can learn more about my own listening ear by thinking critically about the relationship between voice and body. Very interesting. I can tell tell me why when in the space where audio dominates where we are, that that the racial identity or the racialized identity still matter. When I don't think about or do I, now you're making me question a white voice or an Asian voice, or an, a black voice, sometimes I can't identify them until I go back, you know, to, you know, here is the cheat sheet that is the internet, internet world to look at their faces. Um, what do you think about that process of um, going, of presenting yourself with a racialized body um, as you're listening or without one? And do you find your own identity change in the online space um, or in the real world, really, as you take up more space in the in the audio world? I mean, yeah, that's a lot of questions. Um, I mean, I would start off by saying, like, when I when I think about race and voice, I'm thinking a lot about um, Jennifer Lynn Stover. Yes. The Sonic Color Line. Um, and Nina Eidsheim's work as well um, on race and sound. I'll throw that out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, what is that? God, Hungry Listening. Yeah, Dylan Robinson. Dylan Robinson, thank you. <laughs> um, some some really wonderful scholarship about um, race, whiteness, colonialism, indigeneity, and how all of these things play into how we listen um, and how, how racialized... Um, uh, not only voices are, but ideas of what constitutes noise versus what constitutes sound, of what kind of sound is disruptive versus welcome. Um, you know, as Stacey was saying, what kinds of voices are authoritative versus non-authoritative. And you can trace this in some ways through the actual history of like vocal coaching for radio, um, the way that a sort of the voice that was produced as neutral on radio was a voice that was designed around the presumption of white Western cis masculinity and, and voices that were audibly 
accented. Again, every voice has an accent, but voices that were accented as, you know, not North American or not British were, you know, coded differently, continue to be coded differently. Um, And that, you know, is very much part of the presence of like the, the knowledge of the racialization of voices is present in, for example, a lot of black cultural podcasts where there is a lot of like deliberate thinking about, about code switching, about um, African-American vernacular English and its uses in public spaces about, you know, who you're presuming your audience is and how you are speaking based on who you think that audience is. Um, so so the, the racialization of voice threads through the history of radio and of podcasting and I think is, is arguably present in what we are doing with this sound-based medium, whether we're thinking about it or not. Um, and I think certainly as a white settler scholar, I feel you know, whiteness continues to bear the privilege of choosing to opt out of conversations about racialization, of choosing to sort of adopt a position of neutrality. And so when it comes to my own work, I feel a commitment to pushing back against that, that neutrality and that, that treatment of my own voice as, as though it is gendered, but not racialized which is the position that that white women often take is to focus on gender over race because we are attached to continuing to occupy whiteness as a neutral identity. Yeah. And I'll add in, you know, Hannah's kind of mentioning gesturing towards the transatlantic accent movement, um, the transatlantic voice history in radio and in film in the in America from the 30s. And I would argue even today you can hear traces of it, especially in highly trained broadcast voices. Yeah, the um, NPR voice. Yes. Yeah. So it's that uh, what is considered a quote unquote neutral English accent, something that kind of takes some of the um, logics of the British accent being some sort of upper class, high class voice and transferring some of those aesthetics onto the American accent, the North American white accent. Um, And with that, we've I highly invite anyone, you know, when you're listening to the radio next or listening to your favorite podcast next to think about what those voices sound like. And if they are coming from racialized voices, do you know that only by them giving their name or Googling them? um, Or does their voice kind of fit into the same sort of default accent as everyone else on the show or in the flow of a radio day? Um, And for me as a media scholar and communication scholar, I'm also really interested in what that means when we're thinking about who the default audience is and what Lisa Nakamura calls the default whiteness of the digital space as well. We can kind of map that uh, concept onto radio audiences and and, uh, podcast audiences in the same way. Who is the presumed audience of this work? And then what kind of code switching happens with the voice depending on who that presumed audience is? And is the presumed audience of public media like NPR and CBC typically a white uh, male cisgender audience, um, a colonial audience in that sense. 
So those kinds of questions are, are always kind of tangled up in these questions of style and genre and format, I think, too. Can you tell me a bit about what is the significance of naming the identity of privilege, um, which you have done um, quite a bit? I, oh, can you, can you, that's a huge question. Like, do you mean in the, in the, in the world of podcasting specifically, or just, just sort of as a, as a gesture, as a scholar? Yeah, like, let's limit it just to the space of as a privileged, um, as, as a scholar who has, who has access to knowledge, to, to the skill sets of, of research and to um, understanding the or having faith in the rash in 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 the rationality and the science of of reasoning. Um. Oh gosh, do I have faith in the rationality of reasoning? So what I will say is, again, for for me, this comes out of my engagement with um, uh, with with feminist theory, with queer theory, um, uh, with um, more recently critical race theory just in terms recently in terms of my own sort of reading and thinking as a scholar, which is just an ongoing interest, interest in situatedness in, in um, this is, God, what is her name? Oh, it has entirely left my brain. The scholar who talks about Catherine McKittrick um, talks a lot about the idea of where, you know, from, and this idea that knowledge doesn't flow in the ether, it comes from places, it comes from people, it comes from communities, it comes from institutions. And that often what we do in academia is we we appropriate knowledge out of the places it comes from and repackages it, we repackage it as neutral. Um, that's part of the sort of colonial inheritance of the university. And so I think of situating myself and where my own knowledge comes from as part of the sort of um, larger politics of resituating knowledge and recognizing where it is we know from, um, you know, where our learning has come from. Uh, you know, part of that is this feminist politics of citation of wanting to say, you know, here's the person I got this idea from. But part of it is also recognizing that, like, it is also an important part of how I conceive of knowledge. Like I didn't begin as a thinker the day I entered a university, right? I was already a human before I entered the university and ideally continue to be a human and not just a scholar. Yeah. And I, I think that question of situatedness and privilege that you've, you've brought up plays back into a lot of our efforts with the network to think about open access and to think about what it means to be bringing knowledge to not only the people within the walls of a university space who have, you know, the access to journals, but the way that podcasting can open up those conversations and also include people who aren't in the university spaces, but are also contributing to the same conversations. Um, that's also one of the things I really enjoy about the, the podcast movement in the academic world. Um, as we're speaking, I'm also thinking about breaking down of 
the fourth wall. That becoming aware that as we're having an intimate conversation about podcasting, a scholarly podcasting, and yet we also have a lot of the voices behind us,、um, whether scholarly or entertaining, or or so on and so forth. And what what is your experience with trying to break down the fourth wall? Of becoming aware of the audience outside of the the space of university or of the space、um, that we're in to to include more of the audience, more of the third person beyond beyond where we the the room that we're in. Right. I I I mean I could start us off. I started as a theater kid,、um, so I'm very into conversations about breaking down the fourth wall.、Uh, but from there, you know, my university experience started in media production, so I didn't start out wanting to be part of these university academic conversations in any shape or form. So for me, coming into graduate school and my master's was almost entering this. Odd alien world where everyone spoke academies of some sort, and I had to learn how to speak in that language and speak as part of those conversations in ways I had never pictured myself being a part of.、Um, and so, from that point on, it was more of a: How do I bring these worlds together? How do I bring what I've learned in media production and theater, and going out and doing streeters and talking to people, you know? Everyday people, as we call them, I guess, in the academic world, but just other people who aren't doing academic yeah, research or research in the academic world. We forget world. it so much. <laughs> <easily. laughs>、um, like other people who are interested in these topics and ideas <laughs> into the university space. And I mean, podcasting isn't the only place this is happening. There's lots of movements in the university world of trying to bridge those odd disconnects that have formed between. Between community and university spaces,、um, so there's lots of very community-driven work happening across different disciplines and in different forms.、Um, but podcasting for me is one of the ways that we can start to do that in in approaches that bring the audience, bring the public to academic research in a place that they can feel comfortable doing so. And for me, audio is even more so than visual. Um, like film or TV, a space where people can feel comfortable to be a bit more candid as well. If they're not used to being being in front of a camera, like I don't know if you've ever had the camera turned on you before, but it can be really intimidating.、Um, and so, a microphone is a bit more approachable, <laughs> I find, to getting people involved in those conversations if they're a bit hesitant to jump in. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I, you know. I, so I'm a publishing scholar, like that's my that's my discipline now.、Um, and in publishing, we always talk about the fact that like the first thing you need to know is who your audience is. It's not the final consideration; it's the first consideration. And you are thinking about it whether you recognize that or not. It's just that so often as academics, our audience is the two peer reviewers who are going to read this article. Or the fifteen people, if you're very lucky, who will hear you deliver your conference paper, and so we are thinking about very small, very specific audiences, right?、You're, and we and we train our students to do that from day one. We teach them to write for an audience of one, 
me. You're writing for me. I'm the only person who will ever read your work. And then I will tell you if it's good or bad. And then I will throw it in the garbage. And that is how we trade. And then, you know, we gradually expand it until it's like, you're very lucky. You're a big deal now. Your audience has gone from one person to two people. And you might not personally know those two people. <laughs> Calm they yourself. They have a lot of opinions they about your work. They have so many opinions about your work. But you, you were number two. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, we are thinking about audience. We're just thinking of about audience in this, in this very specific way. And so it's a, it's a different kind of thinking to think about a broader audience. And when you do work that is quite public, you know, like podcasting, you often have to think about, you know, the possibility of a deeply unanticipated audience. Um, That has certainly been my experience is that I will talk and then, you know, somebody who isn't the person I was thinking about when I was talking will come back and maybe ask me questions for clarification or, or maybe point out something that I like really missed a perspective that I really didn't think of. And so there's challenges that come with that, right? That like, you get more pushback as a scholar working in a public medium than you do as somebody working in these very sort of small enclosed circles. Um, and I think that pushback can really improve your I think the pushback has certainly improved my work. Um, it certainly made me a better thinker, having a wider audience of people who are not necessarily academics engaging with my work and feeling like they are allowed to respond to it because I am talking to them and saying like, no, you are part of the community I'm talking to. So you can answer back to me, which you wouldn't like, how would you even figure out how to do that if you read a journal article of mine and didn't like it? And you'll never see my conference presentations because you're not going to pay $200 to come to the MLA. I love how you speak to the the, the amazing advantage of um, being being taken a presence in the podcasting world, and so that you you get to attract audience. That there is a dynamic interaction that perhaps for scholars can be incredibly vulnerable if they're not used to. Um, breaking down the Cartesian, I think, therefore I am. Um, you know what I have found. What you just spoke about. I am a human before I'm a thinker. Deeply, deeply moving. Yeah, yeah. I'm in part there paraphrasing this wonderful book by Amy Fung called "Before I Was a Critic, I Was a Human Being," which is just one of my. She's an art critic, and it's just one of my favorite book titles ever. Um, and I think about that all the time. Of like. Well, what am I first? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a person first. Um, it's very helpful in that sense to have friends who are not academics. Because um, I find when you only hang out with other academics, you can kind of collectively forget that you're people. I don't, I don't know why. Um, I do know why the long history of Cartesian thinking is exactly why. Um, but it just, you know, for me and the work I want to do, I want to talk to more people, but it is also worth noting that it's not, we're not making choices as podcasters between talking to nobody and talking to everybody, right? You don't have to 
want to be like fully public in order to be somebody who works in podcasting. You don't have to enter the medium and be like, hey, everybody in the world, time for me to tell you all my secrets. Because there are a lot of different styles. There are a lot of different approaches. There are a lot of different kinds of audiences that you can work to engage in. You can make scholarly podcasts that are really just for other scholars, and that is fine. Um, We don't all have to think about all of our work as being for everybody all the time. Um, In fact, nobody's, nothing is for everybody all the time. Um, And so it's less about thinking like, how do I make this completely public? And more about actually just asking yourself, like, who do I want to be talking to? Yeah, in media studies, there's the very unpopular term of narrow casting versus broadcasting, uh, which nobody uses anymore, but I do think is a useful entry point in thinking about this idea of niche media audiences versus what Benedict Anderson, to be dweeby, um, calls the imagined communities of the nation. Like, how do we understand a public as this broad nation imagined audience or this broad imagined audience of um, everyone who is out there in the world that we need to be thinking about when maybe we're a radio broadcaster for an NPR or CBC, right? In ways that you do not need to worry about when you are podcasting, because you can be talking to a particular imagined community of your own, maybe other scholars in your field, maybe, um, you know, people in your activist community, or just people who are interested in, like, you know, whatever topic you really love, like with Hannah's podcast, which please, like other people who really enjoy Harry Potter, but maybe also enjoy critical theory. Um, And then yes, there's always those unanticipated listeners, but that is not who you are particularly picturing or imagining when you're making the work. So thinking about, you know, who is that person that you want to be speaking to? Um, You don't have to be thinking about everyone absolutely. You can be picturing, you know, your your best friend even if you want to. And that's your your favorite imagined audience. That's very useful in particular when you are dealing with complaints about your podcasts. (laughs) Because um, Witch Please in particular definitely gets, you know, unanticipated listeners, listeners who are not who we are trying to speak to. Um, And so we will get the occasional review or email from somebody who's like, well, I'm a white cis straight man and your podcast makes me mad because you talk about politics too much. And that, like, I can very easily and comfortably just delete that email. I'm just like, you're not my audience. I'm not it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not talking to you. You're welcome to listen if you want, but I certainly feel no commitment to you. Whereas like, you know, I woke up this very morning to an email. We just released an episode about masculinity studies. And I woke up to an email from a listener who is a trans man who was like, I don't think that you thought about trans masculinity in particularly nuanced or useful ways in this episode. And I'm like, you are part of my public. You are part of my community. I am going to take some time and really thoughtfully engage with what you are saying to me. And this person is also a stranger at just as much as that person emailing me to say, to tell me that like, I'm too mean. Um, But I I recognize one as being part of my public. 
Um, and that's going to shape how I, how I think about my responsibility to them. Can you speak more to the question, the, the issue of censorship and self-censorship? Um, I'm thinking about um, silence, about the discomfort in the radio airwave when we hear silence, the need to always speed speed up, to not give space to be pregnant with meaning. Um, what is the role in post-production or in thinking about uh, in how to interact with your audiences? Do you choose to um, limit them or do you choose to include them in the conversations? Can you walk me through some of your thinkings around um, silence and um, censorship? I, I'm happy to start us off. Uh, and then I think Hannah can definitely speak to maybe some more personal experiences too. Um, but I, I really love, I'm in a love-hate relationship with concepts like the pregnant pause, for instance, and like this theory that it is somehow something we need to release somehow, and also the odd gendered nature uh, and odd just bodily nature of that. Um, but I also kind of love it because it does bring us back to this very embodied experience of uncomfortable uncomfortability we feel in these moments of silence in, in the media world. And it also reminds us how much power silence can also have. You know, we don't have to be speaking all of the time. Sometimes silence can be just as powerful in communicating meaning um, in, in creating moments of silence, for instance. You know, we have a moment of silence in memoriam for different experiences in the world. Um, you know, if it's 9-11 uh, memorial, for instance, or Remembrance Day here in Canada, we'll take a moment of silence to remember. Um, silence in the podcast world can play the same role. But when we're talking about silence and censorship, um, that is a whole different politic of silence, right? So there's a power in silence, but there's also um, a taking away of power when it comes to the silencing of people or the censoring of people. Um, and so when we're talking about censorship in the podcast world, I mean, when we look at examples of that, um, if we look at, say, a feminist podcaster versus like a Joe Rogan, who ends up being censored and who is being silenced is very political in that way. Like if we're talking about Joe Rogan in the podcast space, that's someone who doesn't care about people saying they should be censored, they just continue on anyways. And that tells us something in particular about the role of silence um, and who gets to take up space. Um, but also censorship, like I think podcasting allows for you to not feel the need to be censored in the same way unless you are hitting a, a sort of mainstream audience where you're getting a lot of pushback. But that censorship is usually coming from a top-down model, right? Like in the larger media industry, it'll be your producers or your executive producers. It'll be the CEO or owners of the station that ultimately are trying to censor you because of what you're saying is causing 
a bad image or uh, money loss in the in the actual industry or in the actual company that you're in, in ways that if you're an independent podcaster, you don't have to worry about because you are your own boss. Um, so you are the only one that could be censoring yourself. And that is your own <laughs> internal conflict that you have to be dealing with. So there's a lot of different nuances when we're talking about the, the role of censorship and silence in, in this space, for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about it, too, in terms of like these post-production decisions, right? So like I'm sitting there, I'm listening through to my audio, and I'm making decisions about what I'm going to delete. And that, you know, editing is not censorship. Those are two fundamentally different activities, because something isn't censorship, unless it is coming from a body organization or person who has the power to actually force you into silence, right? Like censorship comes from the state. Um, It's not censorship when I think that I sound dumb and so delete something that I have said in my own podcast. Um, That's just editing. Um, But there is no sort of neutral stance on editing. So you are always making particular kinds of decisions. And those decisions have to do with things like how long can the silence be? At what point does it become awkward? And that, you know, is a really fascinating artistic decision that that when we are working particularly in new media, we've got to be aware that like a silence will often register to a listener as something having gone wrong. That if the silence lasts too long, they'll be like, oh, shit, the episode stopped playing like or the you know, it cut off for some reason. And, And so playing with that, like how long can you listen to silence before it stops being a pause and becomes something that's broken is like a really interesting thing that like, you know, sort of a lot of creative podcasts will play with. Um, And the, you know, there are other kinds of silence that are like, are there topics upon which my voice is not the voice that matters or are there topics that I just don't feel I have the authority to talk about, which is actually think a thing that academics are often quite good at is recognizing the boundaries around our knowledge and being like, I don't have the expertise on this thing. Like, I don't know. I don't know this. I'm going to talk about the things I actually know. And if you want to learn more about this thing, let's find somebody who has the expertise to talk about that thing. Like, I think it's kind of a difference between academics and pundits is that we don't imagine that our expertise automatically extends to anything we decide to opine on. Um, Like, I just don't have an opinion about a lot of things because I don't think that I have, this will surprise people who know me because it seems like I have an opinion about a lot of things. Um, And I do, but I also don't have an opinion about a lot of things because I know... I know what I don't know. Um, and and then there's that that third kind, right? That when you're listening back and you're like, God, do I want, do I want this out in the world? And that that kind of silence is one that I have definitely personally had a fraught relationship with, which is to say that I have recorded podcasts where I have said things that were pretty spicy. And then I have gotten in trouble as a result of saying those pretty spicy things. Luckily for me, academic freedom. So even though people got mad at me, nobody could like, you know, get me fired because I'm actually allowed to have spicy opinions about things within my area of expertise. Um, 
But I have increasingly asked myself as I am making a decision about what I want to say, I will instead ask myself, is this the conversation I want to have right now? Like if I'm going to say something that's going to generate a lot of response that I know is going to generate response, do I want to actually have that conversation? Because if I do, then yeah, I will say the thing. I will, you know, call call the beloved Canadian author a shitty white woman because I want to have a conversation about white femininity and public intellectualism and, and, you know, how we wield it as a weapon in the public sphere. Like I, you know, I want to have that conversation. So I'm going to say that thing, even though people are going to get mad at me. And other times I'll be like, God, is this the hill I want to die on? Do I want to talk to anybody about this? And then I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't, it's not where I'm putting my energy today. So that's, you know, that's another kind of strategic and deliberate silence. Um, and I think it's okay to have forms of self-protective silence as well, just to be like, oh, this was, I, uh, recently saw my friend and colleague Zain Yao speak about her new book, which is, God, it's like out here somewhere. I just moved. So like none of my books are where I need to cite them. Um, I think her book's called Disaffected, but it's about the strategic use of affectlessness by women of color. Um, And she talks about it as being sort of the strategy of like deliberate withholding of affect as a political tool that is often about like pushing back against the presumption that people have of like unlimited emotional access to women of color. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an interesting form of, of silence as well. It's just like a silence of refusal that says like, actually, my opinion on this is none of your business or my feelings about this are none of your business. So I'm just not going to talk about it. I love that you named the, the complicated relationships that we have with calling out and also the potential power that, or perhaps the infinite power that, that, that we have within ourselves to decide on, um, who we we let into our world and uh, and who we say hey you know sorry you can't come into our door um i am conscientious of the time that we have um here so um before we close off i have one last question um maybe for okay i'll have two different questions for for you for you um what is one thing that you wish you had known about technology when you began your career for Stacy? And then I'll have one for you, Hannah, later. What do I wish I knew about technology when I started my career? That's a great question. I mean, I have such a close relationship to all of the technology that I use that I wish that I knew maybe the power dynamics of what it means to be able to use them. I think in someone who's gone through media production, who's been very invested in learning about technology, my my former life was as an audio engineer um, working in radio and music production. And so I've, 
constantly been learning how to do advanced audio technology work and and using technology. And honestly, I feel most at home in a music studio, in a production studio, just the hum of computers around me and analog gear is like the homiest feeling I have. Like that's where I have the best sleeps. And so that kind of comfort with technology has made me forget how um, daunting it can be for other people to approach technology and what it means to kind of ease people into that world. So I wish I had been thinking about that a lot earlier to get other folks involved in technology who were a bit nervous to approach it in the first place, rather than just like being so enthused and charging on solo through that world um, and getting so dweeby about it without really noticing everyone else around me in the same way and maybe helping other people along in those early, early days. Thank you. Um, and for Hannah, um, what is your biggest failure and what have you learned from it? Oh, I mean, it's really hard to point to big failures because I feel like I just fail in small ways all the time. Um, I would say, so when I feel like I failed, I feel like I have failed people, right? When I, when a thing feels to me like a failure, it's like this course was a failure because I did not effectively teach my students this publication was a failure because the people I was wanting to talk to, I mean, didn't never saw it or didn't feel spoken to by it. Um, there have been many points in my career when I have let people down. Um, and what I have learned from those many failures is the power of deciding who you are accountable to is deciding who, you know, sometimes there are some people who I have failed in what they wanted for me in who they wanted me to be in what kind of work they wanted me to do. And I am fine with those failures because ultimately I made the decision. I was not accountable to those people um, that they were not the ones I wanted to let define my career or my work. Um, and the other moments where I fail people, right, where I have tried to do something and they come back and say, no, you did a, you did a bad job, or even more so when I don't hear, you know, when I've said something that hurt somebody and they just stopped listening because it was hurtful and they were like, actually, fuck this bitch and just like turned it off and never, never engaged with me again. You know, those moments have taught me that there is so much more to be gained from engaging in processes of accountability than there is to be gained in always defaulting to protecting yourself. Like I've learned so much more by being called in, by recognizing when callouts are actually call-ins because I feel accountable to you. And so I recognize your right to call me in and will respond to you and will actually try to like be in community with you, which means that if and when I have hurt you, I would like to like fix that the same way that you do when you are in a community with anyone. If they're like, hey, you that thing you said hurt my feelings, you're like, oh shit. Okay, let's 
let's do something about this, that it's those, those moments of failure that have taught me the most about the kind of scholar and intellectual and teacher that I want to be. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate well, it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I love it. Thank you so much. This is not the conversation I thought we were going to have about our very practical <laughs> <Me either> guidebook. <laughs> we didn't it's talk okay. once about spreadsheets. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> One, <laughs> One last question. What is a question that you wish I had asked you? I mean, no, these were great. These were all great questions. They surprised me, but in a good way. I was kind of disappointed we didn't talk about spreadsheets. But okay. <laughs> is that the only disappointment? Any any questions? <laughs> No, Stacy loves spreadsheets. Oh, I love a good spreadsheet. No, yeah, um, no. This was a, this was great. I, I always enjoy talking about politics of sound. So this yeah. has been an enjoyable time. Thank you for this. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you.